I remember, I don't know if you do as well, <clears throat> reading in high school the story of Tom Sawyer. And the token story in the book is him skipping school and being forced to wash his aunt, or whitewash his aunt's fence. And for him, he was aware that this was the most tedious of ways to spend a beautiful day. And so Tom began a wise and crafty scheme to swindle other boys into doing his work. And he built up the joy of whitewashing. He made it sound like it was this exclusive and immediately gratifying club privy only to the culturally elect. And with his marketing and his bamboozling, it wasn't long before he had suckered his friend Ben into doing the work while Tom sat in the shade of a tree eating Ben's apple, which he had paid Tom so that he could whitewash the fence. And Mark Twain writes in the story, he says, there was no lack of material. Boys happened along every little while. They came to jeer, but they stayed to whitewash. And the story exposes something central to our Western world. I mean, how many of you have laughed at the outlandish circumstances infomercials present about life? I was at the gym today and they had this infomercial for uh, some Sean T fitness guy thing and it showed somebody trying to do a sit up and they're like, good, good, and like, they make it look like we're fools. And the easiest things like opening doors or closing our windows or opening a can seems like the hardest things so that they could sell their product. They build up these crazy circumstances. Or how many of you have heard the popular offer of immediate results? Lose 10 pounds in 10 days. Increase your vertical in three weeks. Double your investment in the first month. And we look at these things and we laugh. But just like the boys in the book, we come to jeer, but somehow the whitewashing gets done. Somehow these very same things which culture mocks exist at some level because someone's buying it. Because there's a component where deep down, whether we're ashamed to admit what we want to buy or not, we want our life to be that easy. We want things to be simplified. We want the gratification, the acceptance, the respect, the appeal, the ease. We want to take the difficulty out of life. And if you step back from just the silliness of what infomercials tug at, we see that that's why we take chances on things like relationships, education, accessories, false hopes, with the deep desire that someday they will pay off on their outlandish promises. But what if I told you that there was such a promise? What if I told you that it was God who has given us a way through this difficult life? What if, what if this good news that Christians always talk about, this gospel, is really about something with outlandish promises that's true now and in the long run? And see, so we're wrapping up uh, the, the end of First Peter, a book we've been looking at for a few weeks now, and we're going to see God's clear and resolved guarantee to fix everything that's wrong with cultural, nominal, weak Christianity. If you view Christianity as a farce, if you view it as something which you have in your own heart which is weak or ineffective, Peter is going to present tonight a one-time, one-size-fits-all solution to sin, unbelief, lack of affection, and false hope. And his product is suffering. And we might laugh, laughter's maybe not the best word. We might be uneasy or uncertain, and we could scoff 
at Peter's promotion of the Christian life, but what we're going to see tonight is that suffering takes a different shape when we view it through the lens of the eternal gospel. See, the promises that Peter's going to tie to suffering tonight will hold up no gimmicks, no swindling. And what we're going to see tonight is that Christians will suffer for the gospel, but they'll never suffer from the gospel. This distinction in this sentence is really important. Christians will suffer for the gospel, but they'll never suffer from the gospel. And it's something which, as we go on tonight in the text, it will become more clear. But right now, the broad overview is three things we're going to look at about suffering. Three aspects. We're going to see the purpose of suffering, the perspective of suffering, and the preparation for suffering. So we're going to look at those things, um, but let's pray that God is gracious to us tonight. Um, Lord, you are the one who holds all knowledge. You are the one who looks at us, who think we are so strong and so wise and so um, invincible in many ways. And yet we are people with so many desires, so many wants, that we want the hook of what culture is selling. We are people who are persuaded by promises, whether or not we can guarantee those promises have weight, and yet you have stood throughout the centuries as a God who has offered a countercultural promise which has never proven poor on its offer. And so Lord, I pray that you deconstruct our hearts tonight. I pray that you make us to understand things which are so opposite how our hearts are supposed to think, act, and respond. But I pray that it happens not just so that we can have a logical understanding of it, but that through that understanding we may see, know, and experience the center of our faith, which is the communion and relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. We pray that what we discuss tonight is something that will be noticeable in visible, tangible, real ways on our campus, in our classrooms, in our dorm rooms, in our workplaces, and in our social circles. And Lord, we know that this is true because not only have you spoken of the promise of the gospel, but you have intervened in history to show Jesus as the proof of all of your promises. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, we've been looking at suffering for, I think, four weeks now in the book of 1 Peter, and Peter is buttoning up his suffering section, but he's actually starting at the beginning. What we're going to look at tonight is the purpose of suffering. And as I read this text, I want you guys to hear that purpose language. What is happening as a result of suffering? What is the purpose for it? And I want you to see the promise that Peter is giving for anyone who endures suffering. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So Peter begins here with something which ought to shock us culturally, and that is this command, the first imperative we see, do not be surprised when suffering comes upon you. Do not be surprised when it happens. And suffering is something we always find strange and unwarranted, right? 
We get it. Suffering happens, but it always happens to people outside of us. But if suffering ever happens to us, we're always caught off guard, right? Why me? This isn't supposed to happen to me. Just think of all the things you have in your life or that we're promoted to buy, which are designed to limit or eliminate suffering. Much of Western markets exists to try to cover up, to numb, or to medicate suffering. But far from being this strange and unwarranted thing, Peter presents suffering for what it truly is, a test from God. You see, this sounds mystical. It sounds like we're making excuses, but this isn't a new development in this letter. Look back at what Peter opened the book with in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, your college students in here, Tests are part of your life. I've talked to students yesterday. I've talked to students tonight. Tests are on their way. And as much as you hate tests, the joke's on you because you're the one paying for them. (laughs) You're the one willingly submitting yourself for them. And you know that though hard and time-consuming, those tests are actually the means of validating, assuring, and producing the results you want your education to bring you. Your tests are what affirm that your education is actually working. Your tests are what bring confidence to your employers that you're actually capable of doing something. And for us Christians, we can be equally as short-sighted when we face suffering of any kind because we fail to realize the immense benefits which God brings us in the tests of suffering. You see, Peter paints a picture here of suffering insults on account of Jesus. And the only two commands he gives us in this text are do not be surprised and rejoice. Those are the only two commands. In the Greek, we can look and see that this is a command and we see these two imperatives. Do not be surprised and rejoice. And if you've been with us, do not be surprised is old news now, okay? We are not surprised when people hate Jesus because they murdered him. So we're not surprised when people hate Jesus in us because he told us that. But what does it mean to rejoice when we suffer? Is this some weird, sadistic thing that Christians do? What does it mean to rejoice? We'll look back at verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter 4. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So here Peter gives three reasons. Three reasons why you should rejoice when you are insulted for the name of Jesus. Reason number one, he says, because you share in Christ's suffering. Now, Jesus' suffering is the most unique suffering in the whole entire world because it's the only gospel, the only good news the world will ever know. Jesus suffered on the cross as the one innocent man suffering the penalty for all the guilt of man. Jesus died as fully God so that he could be the perfect sacrifice 
But Jesus died as fully man so that he could pay, be the perfect substitute. You see, on the cross, Jesus accomplished more than 10,000 men dying could have ever accomplished. So we don't participate in Christ's suffering in the same way that it's redemptive for people. Only Jesus saves. Jesus didn't leave salvation lacking so that we need to then go suffer and share in this affliction so that we can achieve some sort of spiritual salvation. Our sharing in Christ's suffering is different. We share in Christ's suffering in a way which is evangelistic. First John says that the world has never seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and therefore the world sees God through us. In the same way, in our over-media-saturated culture with all of our cameras, TV shows, podcasts, and internet videos, I sound like an old person saying that, our world will never be able to queue up the events which happened some 2,000 years ago where Jesus of Nazareth was led outside the gates of Jerusalem, hung on a cross, and six hours later pronounced dead. They will never see Christ suffering on the cross for their salvation. Not even in the most vivid or bloody depiction cinema can throw at it, they will never see the true suffering of Jesus. But the world will see a shadow of the suffering of Christ in the light of our own affliction. You see, when believers suffer like Christ, in a lesser way, we are suffering as Christ, held up as mirrors and shadows and images of the greater salvation that Jesus accomplished when he suffered for us. And this is what was meant in Acts 5, this beautiful inversion of suffering, where it says this, starting in verse 40. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. You see that connection? The name, Peter's in this group. Peter's in Acts, being charged not to speak of the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Can you imagine that? being charged not to speak, being beat, being persecuted, and leaving rejoicing that you got to suffer in the same way Jesus suffered. That takes some unique relational fidelity for that to make sense in our minds. And we'll get there. And the second reason, though, Peter gives to rejoice in suffering is the second half of his equation in verse 13. He says, rejoice now insofar as as you share in the sufferings of Christ, that you may rejoice with greater joy when his glory is revealed. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that not only does it invert suffering on its head now, meaning that we see the good of God in suffering and we see the greatest joy in suffering, it also is good because it builds even greater increase later. The wonderful marketing scheme of gospel suffering is suffer once, rejoice twice. Rejoice once in the now and rejoice even more in the later. And we understand this to a lesser extent with things like exercise and love. We submit our bodies to the micro tearing of our muscles and the oxygen deprivation of our lungs so that when the time for performance comes, we can respond with speed and power for the joy of us and for those around us. In our own relationships, or how we think about relationships, 
We resist what Paul calls in Corinthians this burning of passion. It's always a good line to throw in with college students. We resist, we deprive our flesh of the things which culture calls us to engage in right now. But we do so knowing and trusting that if God were to bring a spouse into our life, that on that wedding night, the suffering of discipline will give way to an even greater intimacy done in the confines of God's proper means with the person you have chosen to love like Christ forever. And it makes sense in both of those because we can understand that there is an immediate momentary joy of trust that we can reap. But one day it gives way to the joy of experience in the later where that trust and those promises that brought us joy, confidence, and hope bring us a real experience of the goodness of God. That's reason number two. Greater joy is coming. The third reason Paul gives us is that when we are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Those of you who have your King James, it says, happy are you because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You see, it's hard to doubt the validity or sincerity of your faith when you're willing to suffer for that faith. It's hard to have questions of priorities when your greatest priority is to endure. And you see, because Christ's suffering assured for us a glory, that's what we just talked about, that coming glory, that revelation, that new hope, that future life, that means a suffering in Christ's name gives you the ability to taste glory in the now in a way which is impossible without suffering. It's like a salt which brings out a flavor that is unique if it were to remain absent. Now here's the thing, to be honest, nothing Peter has talked about in the book of 1 Peter up until this point describes a suffering which is foreign from what we might fear today. In fact, what Peter is talking about right now is primarily suffering verbally, being insulted, being mocked, being looked down on because of your faith. Mocked when we try to share the gospel with some of our roommates. Having to endure an awkward remark when we invite our friends to come to Bible study. And yet what Peter is promising is that in those moments of verbal tension, opposition, or insults, you're experiencing a special communion, a special relationship with God that is an affirmation that you are saved. An affirmation that God has put his spirit inside of you and that you are seeing, tasting, and knowing a glory which otherwise you would not be privileged to. You see, if I told you that there were, if you are a believer in here, or even if you weren't a believer, if I told you that there was a surefire way to find joy in religion, there was a surefire way to find deep joy in the person of Jesus Christ and the promise of a greater joy yet to come. But more importantly than that, what if I told you that there was a promise that your affections in the now could be so in tune with God that it would be glorious and affectionate today? Wouldn't you want that? Isn't that exactly the thing Peter is exposing as the purpose of suffering. To grant us all of those things which 
you peel back the curtain and everyone wants. But wait, there's more. This is the second point. This is the perspective of suffering. Verses 15 through 18. But let none of you suffer as a meddler or a thief or an evil, or excuse me, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely, or a better translation, if the righteous is, difficultly, is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? So what we want to do right now is Paul has talked a lot about suffering in the last chapter. I want to zoom out and I want to frame how we think about suffering. Because there are four types of suffering that you can experience here on the earth. Four types of suffering. The first type is suffering the consequence of sin. Suffering the ultimate consequence of sin. This is what is meant in Romans 6.23 where it says the wages of sin is death. The wages, what you have earned, what you have merited, what you have deposited, what is your just due is death. And there are two types of people who will experience this consequence. Those who, as Peter says here, do not obey the gospel of God and Jesus. Those are the only two people who will bear the full consequence of sin. Those who reject God's truth and those who see Jesus as taking the wrath of God in their place. You see, there is an eternal punishment which is demanded because of the infinite treason of our sin against God. And you will either meet the demands of that consequence on your own or you will realize that Jesus has met those for you in his grace on the cross. And this suffering, the reason we talk about this suffering first is this is the worst suffering the world will ever know. The worst suffering our culture talks about are diseases which start with that big word, terminal. But the worst suffering isn't terminal, it's eternal. Terminal means there's an end. Eternal means there's no end to your suffering. And that's what all of us are born into. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus solved this problem for the believers on the cross and it's that solution which stands in opposition to judgment. You see, it's the joy that we just talked about which comes later, which stands in opposition to the consequence of sin that you will have if you stand on your own. That's the first type of suffering, the ultimate consequence of sin. The second type of suffering is suffering the results of sin. This is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 4, 15, which we just read. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. So this kind of, last kind of suffering suffered by unbelievers, suffered by Jesus. This kind of suffering is experienced by both believers and non-believers. For you who are Christian, Jesus has lifted the ultimate consequence of your sin. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but he hasn't removed the results of your sin. You see, here Peter talks about suffering as a murder doer. Murder doer. It's a new word, you can use it. It's one who does murder. As a murderer, <clears throat> as a thief, 
as an evildoer or as a meddler or one who is overly concerned or idolatrous of the lives of those around them. And to sin in these ways, it produces a natural consequence from your actions. To murder someone, you bear the consequences of the decision of the court. To steal from someone, you bear the consequences of retribution. To speak harmfully towards someone, you may feel, and perhaps you have even done it this week in a, in a, in a, a harsh word or an, uh, or an angry conversation. You have sinfully done something and you have felt the pain of a wounded relationship or a damaged love. This is not the kind of suffering that Peter's calling us to endure. This is not the suffering that Peter holds up as a glorious sin-crushing victory for Jesus. Yet, it's oftentimes this suffering from sinful behaviors that Christians justify as some sort of glorified godly suffering. Perhaps it's just in my own life, and maybe I do this more than I would like to admit, but I see people who run into real conflict and real results of sin, and they just blame it on the fact that we're Christian and people hate us. They play the victim role, which is so antithetical and opposite to what Jesus actually done. We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. We are victims of no one. And yet, sometimes we, under, we look at suffering from the result of sin and we let it be saying that, oh, that's okay. But God has graciously given us suffering as a result of sin so that we can feel the pain, we can experience the disharmony, and we can be reminded of the repentance that Jesus has brought us. And we can turn to Jesus and repent and change and experience instead the newness of grace and mercy. It's the second type. Third type of suffering is suffering the effects of sin. As believers, we live free from the consequence of sin. As believers, as we grow in sanctification, by God's grace, we might go through prolonged seasons of being free from the results of sin, but almost daily we come into conflict with the effects of sin. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8 verses 22 through 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of what is physical. You see, creation groans as a result of sin. Sin is not just this immaterial thing which afflicts us, Sin is something which has affected our world. Not morally in the same way. It hasn't damaged the world's relationship with God for the world wasn't made to relate with God in the same way we were. But we experience disasters, physical diseases, and natural phenomena which are not in any way a punishment for sin. But the only reason they exist is because our world has sin. And where there is sin, there is always danger. That means every time we experience physical suffering, be it in the diagnosis of cancer in yourself, the death of a loved one, or even in an early morning stubbing of your toe, we should be reminded of how heavy the world is with sin and how wonderful it is that Jesus removed the heavier weight of the consequence of sin from our heart. 
And that glory Peter talked about, which is coming, we go to a world where we're not only free from the consequence or the result, but we're also free from the effects of sin. And in that world, there will be no more tears, for we will be with God and we'll be his people. But this suffering still isn't the type of suffering that Peter's talking about here. The last type of suffering is what Peter talks about in verses 15 and 16. Or excuse me, 16 and uh, 17. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. And then verse 17, I think I probably messed up the PowerPoint slide because it's wrong in my notes. Verse 17 says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We do not suffer as a sinner, as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or meddler. We suffer as a Christian. This is the last type of suffering. Suffering as a Christian. We saw when we looked back at 1 Peter 1, earlier in this, that he, Peter talks about the fiery trial. We look back to where Peter started today. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you. And now we look and he describes suffering as judgment. And what Peter is talking about here is actually picking up a theme that the Old Testament talks about. Uh, and it uses to describe suffering in this term of refinement, this term of fire. And here's a passage in Zechariah, which is probably something that Peter had in his mind when he wrote what he just wrote, and it says this, in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They, that is in the midst of their testing, will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. So this is an important perspective that suffering exposes in us. If there's one thing I want you to understand about the perspective of suffering, it's this. It exposes the only enemy in the whole world is sin. For it's actually sin which is the source of all suffering. Peter and Zechariah use these allusions to a refiner's fire. And for those who are unfamiliar with this, a little background is needed. It's in case you're not a geology student, is that a thing? Yeah, there are geology students here. In case you're not a geology student, gold and silver don't come from jewelry stores. They come from the ground. They're metals. And so miners go and they find this metal and there's this blob of shiny, valuable stuff. But because it's from the earth and because of how it forms, there's impurities. There's portions on the outside and portions on the inside, which are not as valuable. And not only are they not valuable, but they are a damage to what is valuable. So what the refiner would do is he would take this lump of metal and he would throw it into the hottest oven and he would let it sit in there. And the gold would get hot, 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 hotter. But it wouldn't melt because it has a higher melting point than the lesser quality metals that were in it. And so what would happen is while the gold's temperature would rise and it would be surrounded by heat, the gold would come out pure. What was damaged wasn't the metal that was valuable. What was damaged was that which was invaluable. 
Instead, you're left with pure value, untainted from things. The dross was removed from the metal. And this is where I want to return to the main point I had tonight, the point that Christians will suffer for the gospel, but they will never suffer from the gospel. We've just looked at four types of suffering which the Bible lays out for us. And in each of those, there's a common denominator as to what it is you suffer from. Suffering the consequence of sin, we suffer from the eternal damnation that comes from our rejection of God. Suffering the consequence of sin, we suffer, or excuse me, the result of sin, we suffer from human decisions made sinfully. Suffering the effects of sin, we suffer from the residual ripple effects of sin being present in our world. And then there's suffering as a Christian. But this is distinct. Because in those other things, we see the suffering is clear. We're suffering because of sin. Sin is the source of the suffering. But when we get to suffering as a Christian, Christianity and the gospel or Jesus is not the source of suffering. You never suffer for, or you never suffer from, excuse me, Christianity. You suffer from a lack of skill. You can suffer from a lack of knowledge. You can suffer from a lack of focus or a lack of worship or a lack of belief, but you will never suffer from the gospel because the gospel is only good news. There is no downside to the gospel. There is no uh, fine print. It is only good. Even when we suffer as a Christian, you are not suffering from the gospel. You are suffering as the result of sinful man's sinful response to a pure and good God. Now, this is where the beauty's at. So we're gonna have to do some thinking here because we have to hold two things together. If our suffering is always a response of sin, sin is always the source of suffering, and if what we just read through the refiner's illustration, that suffering is also the same thing which puts sin to death inside of us, then suffering for the sake of Jesus is actually what distances us from the source of suffering. Sin is what brings suffering. Suffering as a Christian is what helps us put to death sin. That means that something unique and amazing is happening in the midst of our suffering. You see, instead of suffering from something of lesser value, we're suffering for, as in for the purpose of, with the progress towards something of more infinite worth. That means that you and your life can be put into the oven of, of, of opposition and of oppression and you can feel the heat and you can see things happening around you and you can sense the flames, but you will endure no harm because there's a greater value at stake because you'll never suffer from the gospel. And Peter says this is difficult. It's not difficult because salvation was difficult for God to orchestrate. It's not what he means. It's not that the righteous are scarcely saved because God only had limited mercy. It's that Peter knows the real hardship of living a Christian life. He knows despite the promises of good and suffering that suffering is always hard.
But how much harder then would it be to live an easy life soaked with sin and to achieve that same salvation? Impossible. In every other area of your life, you will suffer from lack, from want, from decay, from change. But you will never suffer lack in the gospel. You will never find want in the grace of God. You will never see the decay of the promises of Jesus, and you will never lose anything which you perceive as adding value or beauty to your life because Jesus has already endured past death. And there's nothing the world can give us better than that promise. As Charles Spurgeon, the British preacher says, better to be taught by suffering than to be taught by sin. Our God is so great that not only does suffering fit inside our gospel, but suffering is an essential part of it. The question of suffering that, that progressive liberal uh, uh, academics or even liberal Christians bring as a problem to our faith, they pose no problem to our God. Suffering poses no threat to Jesus or to our faith, for suffering is often the tool of God for the care of his church and the glory of his name. This brings us in conclusion to the last point, a preparation for suffering. So far in this text, we've seen three imperatives. Imperative one, do not be surprised by suffering. Imperative two, rejoice in suffering. Imperative three, which we didn't spend time on, but you saw in verse 16, it is to glorify God in your suffering. And now we see the final imperative, 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. See, it's not strange. Your suffering isn't strange. Your suffering is according to God's will. But therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Do not be surprised. Rejoice. Glorify God. Entrust God while doing good. I was talking last night with Austin, and, and I told him that this passage was really interesting to me. And nowhere in the Bible do we see commands to pursue suffering. There have been weird sects of Christianity who have misinterpreted and misapplied verses like this and they flee to the desert to suffer as if that suffering makes them more holy and gives them a better relationship with God. But that's not Christian suffering. That's not suffering as a Christian. And yet I see everything this text promotes and promises and I want it and I need it. I want a clearer picture of God's grace. I want the Holy Spirit to dwell in me richly so that I might feel and know and experience the glory of God in a wonderful way which is palpable and worship-filled. I want to rejoice in Jesus in a way which is deeper than I ever have before. But here I am. In Chem 123, on the liberal center of Montana, yet with no real threat to my faith. So what do I do? This is why this last imperative is so helpful. Entrust yourself to your faithful creator 
while doing good. This idea of doing good is a big theme that Peter's talked about in his book. Look back at 1 Peter 2, 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 20 of chapter 2. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Chapter 3, verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so as I want the promise that comes through suffering, and yet I don't want suffering, and nor is suffering present to me, what am I to do with this text? To trust God and do good. So I got me to think, where am I doing good in my life? I don't just mean good in terms of where am I helping old ladies across the street? Where am I doing good like Peter has defined for us in this book? Where am I doing good by laying aside my rights to serve those who are around me? Where am I fighting actively against sin in my own life? Where am I fighting actively against the sin in the lives of those around me? Where am I earnestly loving those around me? Where am I showing hospitality without grumbling? Where am I proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Where is my Christian faith impacting my public sphere in front of the authorities or my bosses? Where is my Christian faith even visible? Where do my good deeds stand out from a different perspective of the deeds of my peers? The question that we should be asking as a result of this text is where is your good? Because that's what God has called us to do. And I, I think of what the goodness of the gospel has called me to do. And I think of where I fail to do that. And it's because I'm scared. Though there's not present persecution in any sort of real heavy way here, I'm scared of the results. I'm scared of the weird, of the awkward, of being spoken against being insulted. I've bought the infomercial that there's another silly solution and outlandish promise which can truly satisfy. So where in your life have you been swindled to paint a fence with the devil when God has offered you a riverbank with his salvation? Where have you been sold a false bill of sale promoting fear and uncertainty when God has promised you confidence and peace? To those in here skeptical of the gospel, do not be deceived. If suffering does not meet you in this life, it will meet you in the next. That's not karma. That's the wages of sin. But the gospel offers a benefit, a glorious, redemptive, wonderful benefit now and an even greater benefit of endless life, eternal relationship, and God's glory forever in the next life. You see, the gospel's not a bad infomercial. Peter's not the peddler of some worthless trinket. 
In AD 155, an elderly pastor by the name of Polycarp was led to be burned at the stake in Smyrna. The officials offered him one more chance to reject Christ, for him to do the opposite of what Peter called him to do, to, for him to be ashamed of the name of Christ, and to turn over and cave to the empty product of the world. But Polycarp stood there and said, 86 years I have served Jesus and he never did me any wrong. How could I blaspheme my king? You see what Polycarp, at 86 years Christian, proved is just what the testimony of scripture presents. That God only promises good for us. We may suffer for him, but we will never suffer from him. You will know no lack, you need no fear. And Peter's cry, even to us who live in relative peace, is trust that God, trust that king, live a life of good, and if suffering comes or if suffering doesn't, so be it, we're doing what Jesus has called us to do, and in that God is glorified, and you will be rewarded. But prepare yourself for the way and day where in our life sparks insults, oppositions, or persecution from those around us, and let us trust our soul faithfully to the faithful creator, the wonderful creator who, like any creator, knows the limits of his creature because he made it. But more than a simple creator, our God knows the limits of his creation because he experienced it. Therefore, let us draw near to God with confidence. For we have a high priest who has gone before us. How are you prepared to prepare for suffering? How are you to rightly desire the benefits of Peter's promises? Here's how. Trust God and live Christianly. Entrust your life to God and do what God has called you to do. And fear not. Because we have nothing to fear. Let the filter of Peter be the filter of your decisions here on campus. Let the weight of the cross be the influence of your words here on campus. Let the confidence of the gospel be your boldness here on campus. Because the worst thing that the world can give to us is suffering. And God in his mercy has made the world's most negative response into his kingdom's most offensive weapon. Where, where saints are purified, Christ is glorified, and sinners are converted. And God has given us that gift. So here I have a real point of application for you guys. Tomorrow night, our Bible study we talked about is going to be different. We're going through a really helpful booklet called Christianity Explained. And it's designed to give a clear picture of what the gospel is. It's good for you. It's really good for those who are around you. Where does doing good start? It can start by inviting someone to that. It can start by feeling whatever awkward tension might come through inviting either another Christian or a non-Christian to this and trusting that whatever happens, if the gospel is presented, we can trust that God's gonna do good with it. 
Whatever the response is, we can trust that God's going to do good with it. Guys, there's much work left to do, but we'll never suffer from the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we there's no more dangerous text to pray for than this text because nothing threatens the empty desires and remaining sin we have like the promise of suffering. Nothing makes us cling so tightly to the idols we desire and we squeeze and we hope that somehow in some magic way they meet their empty promises to bring us peace. But God, through trusting you and doing good, you have brought us relief from the slavery of false affections. So Jesus, fit our eyes with the boldness that suffering brings us. Fit our hearts with the weight and trajectory of a Godward eternity spent with you. And fix our words, our thoughts, our actions, and our attitudes with the value, purpose, and goodness of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let those who suffer entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. Let it be so. Amen.